This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Center for Middle Eastern Studies, part of Hemispheres. On this episode of 15-Minute History, we're going to be talking about Russia's October 1917 revolution. Today's guest, once again, is Joan Newberger, who is editor of Not Even Past and professor in the Department of History, who spoke in an earlier episode on the February 1917 revolution in Russia. So, Joan Newberger, welcome back. Thanks, Chris. So, when we left off, we'd had one revolution in 1917, and there was a second one a few months later. Why wasn't the February Revolution the end of the story? Uh, well, Chris, the one thing we've learned from revolutions in the 19th and 20th and 21st century uh, is that it's much easier to overthrow a bad government than to construct a new one. Uh, if we look at the classic revolutionaries of France and Russia and China, um, what revolutionaries were fighting for egalitarian societies, democratic governments, those are rarely the result. Chaos, conflict, uncertainty, more violence are much more common and often led to centralized authoritarian governments. And we can look most recently in Iraq and in Egypt at how hard it is to construct a new government, Absolutely. a new stable government after a, um, after a revolution. So when we left off... The Romanov dynasty had been deposed. So what happened next? Uh, well, after the overthrow of the 300-year-old Romanov dynasty, um, there was general euphoria and celebration all over the Russian Empire. In Petrograd, which today is St. Petersburg, within 24 hours, there were no signs of the czarist order on the streets. Statues were pulled down, flags were lowered and burned. Uh, the Romanov family crest, the double-headed eagle, were pulled down, and there was literally celebration on the streets. Um, but the problem is that after the party, um, governing problems arose immediately. Who should rule in place of the czars? It wasn't clear. There wasn't a set of traditional institutions who could easily take the place of these centralized powers. Um, and who should decide who should rule? There was no clear answer to that question either. Uh, and how especially problematic, how could these decisions be made in the middle of a war? Because Russia was in the midst of World War I, which had started in 1914 and would continue through 1918. Um, while politicians decided these questions, um, there were all sorts of practical everyday problems. Food needed to be produced in the countryside. It needed to be transported to people living in cities, needed to be transported to soldiers at the front. Uh, people needed to work. Factories were in many places in chaos themselves uh, at a standstill. Uh, soldiers, who were mostly untrained recent recruits from the peasantry, uh, many of them began trickling home from the front to their villages in the hopes that the revolution would bring them what they thought was theirs all along, which was the land. Uh, and so conditions around the huge Russian Empire soon really spun out of control. And in less than a year, in October 1917, uh, the moderates who led the movement to overthrow the Tsar were themselves overthrown. In October 1917, the most radical political group on the scene, the Bolshevik Party, who were socialists who would become the Communist Party, would come to power. So... How did a party that no one took seriously at the beginning of the revolution in February, a, a group so radical it was on the very far left fringe, um, 
and this is the Bolshevik Party, how did they eventually come to power in, in just a few short months later in October? Well, that really is the question uh, for the year 1917 in Russia. Um, and related to this question is one more. Was the Bolshevik Revolution in October just a coup carried out by a small group of fanatical, power-hungry socialists? Or was it a popular democratic movement supported by the majority of people? Um, in order to answer these two questions, we can look at some of the crises that took place during the year of 1917 and see what the Bolsheviks did during those crises to see how they came to power, to see what they were doing right in political terms that no one else was doing. So let's start with March 1917, uh, right after uh, the revolution of 1917 overthrew the Tsarist regime and left a power vacuum in Petrograd. The first crisis is a crisis of governance. Um, moderates from almost every political party immediately set up a provisional government in Petrograd, the capital. Why provisional? Because as liberals and moderates, they believed that government should be based on the will of the people, that representatives of the people should write a constitution that would lay out the basic rules for governance and for civil rights, and then they should hold elections to create a new government. The problem was that in March 1917, the country was at war, and the people in power didn't think that they could withdraw from the war and leave their allies um, alone, or that they could stop to hold a kind of constitutional convention. So they created an interim government called a provisional government with the idea that um, they would just be provisional until they could end the war. So you mentioned this is a government of moderates and liberals, but obviously the, the, we know retrospectively that the socialists uh, played a huge role in what happened afterwards. So where were they in all of this? Uh, well, at this point, the political system was really dominated by moderates, conservatives, and, and liberals. And although there were socialists in the czarist government, um, they played a much smaller role. And the really radical parties were out on the streets organizing um, workers or organizing peasants, uh, but they didn't play as large a role in the government. Um, at this point, though, they decided it was it was their turn to pick up some of the power that was lying around in the streets. The political leaders who represented peasants and workers really didn't trust the provisional government to respect the rights of the majority of people uh, who had provided the muscle for overturning the government in February 1917. Most of the people wanted an end to the war and some signs of the egalitarian distribution of power, and they wanted it now, not later. Uh, most of these leaders were socialists, by far the most popular political parties at the time, even though they'd been out of power up until this time. Socialists followed the theories of Karl Marx, who claimed that a socialist government could only take place after the liberals and capitalists had been in power for a long time, um, long enough to establish a rule of law, and long enough so that the workers would become so poor and the wealthy would become so wealthy, the wealth would be concentrated in the hands of a very small minority of people. So most socialists in Russia really weren't ready to come to power yet themselves. They didn't believe it was their time to take power, but they didn't want to cede all power to the liberals either. So they set up a kind of watchdog institution called the Soviet. Soviet's just the Russian word for council. Uh, and these councils of workers and peasants and soldiers' representatives had sprung up um, earlier in 1905, uh, and they sprang up again here in 1917. 
And the Soviet in Petrograd was kind of a watchdog for the provisional government. Um, and the result was what we call dual government. The provisional government was too weak to prevent the Soviet from forming, but the Soviet was too weak and uh, to come to power now and not really ready to come to power now. And the result was a kind of gridlock that just added to the chaos of life in 1917. So where were the Bolsheviks in all of this? Well, the Bolsheviks were too radical to play a prominent role in the provisional government. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with the provisional government. Um, there were representatives of the Bolsheviks in the Soviet, um, although they weren't the majority at the beginning of 1917. Uh, and their leader was still in exile. Vladimir Lenin, who is the acknowledged leader of the Bolshevik Party, um, didn't arrive back in Russia until April 1917. At that point, he made a speech that uh, was barely noticed at the time, but that's come down as uh, looking like one of the most important turning points of the year. At the time, this speech shocked even his closest supporters. He said, we don't need to follow Marx's historical prescription at this time. We've waited long enough for the liberals and capitalists to do their thing. There's no reason not to seize power now. All power to the Soviets, that is, all power to the, to the socialist wing of the government. That was his slogan. And uh, Lenin really, Lenin recognized a power vacuum when he saw it, and he realized that it would be possible to take power sooner rather than later. All power to the Soviets turned out to be an incredibly popular slogan. Uh, Soviets sprang up all over the country after the February Revolution, replicating dual government in cities and towns all over the Russian Empire. Uh, and then in Petrograd and elsewhere, all sorts of grassroots institutions also sprang up in addition to the Soviets. The provisional government was kind of dragging its feet on creating democratic government, on instituting workers' control of factories, and on land reform. So ordinary people began holding elections for factory councils and neighborhood militias, and socialists dominated these local elections from the very beginning. Okay, so to sum up what we have going on right now, we've got the socialists gaining wild popularity, we've got a very unpopular war going on, and we have well, two, if not many more governments forming around the country. So how did the provisional government attempt to deal with this? Well, they decided that the best thing to do would be to try and bring an end to the war, and that um, the Russian military was still in a pretty strong position, they believed, in the middle of 1917. Um, but by the end of 1916, Russia was actually winning the war on their front, uh, and so the provisional government decided to launch an offensive against Austria in, and its allies in June of 1917. It was a carefully planned offensive, but it turned out to be a disaster. Um, the Russian army was in much more chaotic situation than the provisional government realized, and so uh, the Russians lost that war. Um, this undermined the um, authority of the provisional government in the eyes of many, many people. Um, the provisional government itself had to reform throughout some of its more moderate liberals uh, and brought more socialists into the provisional government with the hopes of winning the support of socialists uh, around the country. It was now led by Alexander Kerensky, who was a socialist, and whose goals were to maintain order, to organize food supply, and ultimately to enact uh, land reform. But 
even he wasn't ready to enact land reform yet. Um, the war was so unpopular, though, that during the summer of 1917, soldiers were deserting from the ranks by the thousands. What had been a trickle in February became a flood during the summer, as soldiers not only deserted the front, but came home, went back to their villages to seize the land that they considered to be their own. Now, at this point, the only political party outside the power structure, outside the provisional government, was the Bolshevik Party. And at the same time, the Bolsheviks were the only party to actually encourage peasant land seizures. Uh, Lenin made speeches all over Petrograd and all over that part of the country, um, calling for peasants to go ahead and seize the land, saying the provisional government's dragging its feet on what they promised you. Go ahead and take it yourself. Um, and we can look at this, these speeches by Lenin in two different ways. One is he was responding to the popular will of the people. It was politically a brilliant move. Um, on the other hand, it was highly irresponsible contribution to the illegal, disruptive, chaotic land settlement um, that all parties supported, um, but that the more responsible parties felt needed to be planned and carried out in a more organized fashion. The upshot of it was, though, that it won the Bolsheviks a lot of popular support. In the cities, workers were taking control of factories or at least electing committees to assert what they called workers' control. And that was one of the other promises of the, of the February Revolution, that workers would be able to control their destinies in the factories. Um, workers' control, though, was a pretty vague notion. It didn't have much power in practice, but that didn't stop workers from holding elections in factories, whether they had any power at, the, at that time. The elections increasingly gave legitimacy to workers who identified with and supported the Bolshevik Party. Again, this was the only party that was not tarnished by participating in the provisional government and the disastrous June offensive. Um, and uh, the Bolsheviks seemed to be the party that truly supported the peasants and workers, which again were by far the majority of the population. In July, the Bolsheviks thought they might have enough support to actually call for all power to be turned over from the provisional government to the Soviets. At the last minute, Lenin and the Bolshevik party really decided they didn't have that kind of power. So they pulled out of the July demonstration. The demonstration went ahead anyway, and it was, it was still associated with the Bolsheviks, but it was successfully suppressed by the Kerensky government, who... Um, arrested most of the Bolshevik leaders and claimed that the Bolsheviks' only goal was to disrupt the legal government in the country. So that actually ended up tarnishing Bolshevik uh, support with, with many people, including the workers who participated and felt that they'd been left out um, to dry by the Bolshevik party. But then uh, that was very short-lived. And in August, the next crisis gave the Bolsheviks even greater credibility with the mass of people. And how, how did they accomplish that? Well, things at this point were really pretty chaotic. Remember, we've got, it's summertime, we've got peasants seizing land, we've got workers demonstrating and seizing factories, or trying to seize control of factories. Um, there's problems with food supply, there's problems with uh, the military, uh, peasants flooding home. And in these kinds of circumstances, it's really common for a popular military hero to offer and succeed in bringing order back to society. And we had just such a popular war hero in the figure of Lavr Kornilov. 
But Kornilov's attempt to bring troops into the capital was seen by most people as an attempt to take away the democratic gains of the revolution. And in the end, although uh, Kornilov gathered troops outside of Petrograd, uh, Kerensky had to call on the Soviet and the Bolsheviks to protect Petrograd from the military counter-revolution, from a military coup. This firmly restored Bolshevik popularity uh, in the capital in Petrograd, but also around the country, as they were seen to be the only group of people protecting the democratic revolution from counter-revolution. And by September, the Bolsheviks gained a majority in the Petrograd Soviet for the first time. Kerensky tried to rally support for the provisional government, but rumors spread that he'd been secretly negotiating with Kornilov to uh, come into the city, and those rumors doomed Kerensky and his government. So how did the Bolsheviks use this crisis to bolster their popularity and power? Uh, Lenin began lobbying hard within his own party to seize power now. He saw the provisional government was really falling apart. Kerensky's popularity was falling apart. Uh, and he called for all power to the Soviets. Um, as it happened, an all-Russian Congress of Soviets was scheduled to meet in Petrograd in October. That is, representatives of Soviets from all over the country were coming into Petrograd to meet and decide what to do. Um, by the fall of 1917, the Bolsheviks had the support of local factory committees. Um, they had majorities on many local factory committees at this point. They had the support of the peasants. Um, and they had the provisional government was severely weakened. Uh, and then, during the Kornilov affair, one of the reasons that the Bolsheviks did so well is that another Bolshevik leader, Lev Trotsky, had formed armed militias called military revolutionary committees to protect the revolution from the military coup. So they had really everything they needed. The only thing Lenin didn't have uh, to seize power was the support of the leadership of his own party. But by the end of October, the whole Bolshevik party was now in favor of seizing power. And then on the night of October 24th, 25th, while most people in Petrograd were living their lives, having dinner, going out to theater, going out to restaurants, walking around the city, it was a quiet, peaceful night. The Military Revolutionary Committee was busy taking over all the key Petrograd institutions, uh, the railroad stations, the telegraph. Um, it was all pretty peaceful. Most people in Petrograd didn't even notice um, one of the key events in all of Russian history. Uh, on October 25th, the next day, the Bolsheviks broke into the Winter Palace, um, the big palace on the Neva River that's now the Hermitage Museum. Um, this was where the Tsars had had their center of power and had lived, and where Kerensky and the provisional government were um, basically hiding out. The Bolsheviks broke in and took over the government. Kerensky managed to escape, much to the chagrin of the Bolsheviks, uh, and he lived first in Europe and then lived out the end of his life at Stanford University. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, at this time, though, the Congress of Soviets was meeting, and they ratified the transfer of power, um, but the majority in the Congress of Soviets were other socialists, not Bolsheviks. Uh, they assumed that the slogan, all power to the Soviets, meant all power to all the Soviets. But Lenin had other ideas, and he claimed that all power would go really to the Bolsheviks, and that even though the Bolsheviks didn't have a majority in the all-Russian Congress of Soviets, the Bolsheviks would dominate the government now. 
This was a dictatorial move, obviously, that had nothing to do with the egalitarian hopes that brought the Bolsheviks into power. Uh, and it led to the um, it led directly to a long civil war that would follow beginning in 1918. So going back to the question we posed at the beginning of the episode, um, how did this far left fringe party come to power? And was it a coup carried out by a small group or was it a popular democratic movement? Well, Vladimir Lenin was a brilliant political strategist. He understood um, very well where power was being held in 1917 and where its weaknesses and where its strengths were. And he kept himself um, outside. He kept the Bolsheviks outside the provisional government so they weren't tarnished by the problems of governing in a year of revolution. Uh, And... um, he sought the support of the popular um, of popular groups. He supported uh, everything that the peasants and workers had wanted out of revolution. Peasants and workers were the overwhelming majority of the population, um, so that support was really a key political move. Uh, as far as was this a, a coup, there's a, a historian who said that power was lying on the streets in October 1917, and any group of determined men could just pick it up, uh, and that that's what Lenin and the Bolshevik leadership did. Uh, and there's some truth to that. Lenin saw that power was lying on the streets, and he persuaded the leadership of the party to pick it up. Um, but they couldn't have done it without the events of 1917 and without the popular support in the in the in the Soviets and um, among the peasantry. Well, Joan Newberger, thank you for being with us again. Uh, this has been another episode of 15 Minute History. If you missed the episode on the February 1917 revolution, you can download it from our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15 Minute History. That's the numerals one five minute history. We'll see you next time. If you have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to have us talk about on an upcoming episode of 15-Minute History, go to our website, blogs.utexas.edu backslash 15-Minute History, that's 1-5-Minute History, and click on the Contact Us link in the right sidebar. The opinions and views expressed in today's episode are not representative of the University of Texas at Austin or any of its constituent bodies and are solely those of the people who spoke them.